You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Koki Uchiyama, who is the founder and CEO of Hatolink Inc. He founded Hatolink in 2000 and led it to be the first IPO among the social media analytics listening players in the world. He also has a strong passion to do social activities. One of his major activities is to lead the projects called Fami Projects, which aims to make the society accept the diverse forms of family. On today's show, we talk about what was it like to get an acquisition offer from SoftBank and turn it down? How is running a public company different than running a private company with investors? How can entrepreneurs from Japan succeed in the U.S. market and the possibilities of blockchain technology in the future? All right, let's start the show. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Koki, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, we're here recording live at the Sapien Impact Hub in Menlo Park, live studio audience. So I got to thank you for taking your time to come here. I mean, I know your background, but our audience doesn't. Can you give us a brief introduction of your career up until this point before we really dive deep into everything you're working on? I'm a serial entrepreneur and a social entrepreneur. I started the two companies before. And uh, let me start from the entrepreneur story. So in 1995, I developed the first internet search engine before Yahoo Japan was established and Google didn't exist at that, at that timing. And I was a PhD candidate in the university. And my professor asked, asked me whether you go into the research course or doing the business. So I decided to go to the business course. So I quit on the way of the PhD and I, I focused on the search engine company. And at that timing, Mr. Song, a CEO of SoftBank, offered us to be acquired by 1 million US dollars, but we rejected his offer. Then he fly to Silicon Valley and shake hands with Jerry Yang, and he started Yahoo Japan, and Google started later, and we were defeated by Yahoo Japan. <laughs> then, but at that timing, I was the responsible for the research and development, and I realized that AI cannot judge this homepage is suitable for beginner or not or this movie can impress you or not. So we thought that AI should learn from human judgment. So I got the idea and the vision of the combination of social data, that means a human judgment, and a combination of human judgment and AI. So I got the vision of the next uh, social infra infrastructure should be the combination of that. So I started Hotlink with that vision in 2000. So that is my present company. And that company did IPO in 2013. Then we acquired US in 2013. Now I'm a, a group CEO of those group. And also I'm a CEO of a US subsidiary company. You sat down with the SoftBank CEO. You got an acquisition offer from him. What was that like to say no? How was that experience? At that timing, we don't know about 
M&A or startup or venture success story. There are no success story in Japan at that timing. So we thought that we do not want to be controlled by adult. We didn't think so much. So it was a very easy decision for us. You made the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. What advice do you have for other early stage founders, other startup founders that get an unsolicited acquisition offer? What advice do you have for them? That depends on the situation. If I give advice to young self at that in 1995, I say, accept that offer <laughs> soon. <laughs> Yeah, because it, it took so many time for internet adoption by society. And there, there is so much money needed to survive. And if we uh, worked with Mr. Song, I could lead the innovation of Japanese digital marketing and the Japanese internet industry. And also, uh, probably I can work with him now for Vision Fund of SoftBank. That's fascinating, looking back on how things could have been. Mm -hmm. But you've had so many successes, though. You never know. Maybe you've been replaced by Mr. Song right after he gave you the acquisition offer. I mean, no, no one knows what would have happened, but you did take a company public in Japan. I've never talked to anyone that has, that has done that. What is that roadmap in preparation? Why not? I'm guessing you probably got another acquisition offer even before going public. What were the conversations like before leading up to it? There are several offers of acquisition of us, but for Japanese entrepreneur, IPO is a big goal. But in US, not only IPO, so acquired by some big company is another exit option. But at that timing, many entrepreneurs pursue the IPO. And uh, M&A uh, acquired by another company mean that it's loose. But these days it's changing. But uh, we want to win at that moment. We rejected many offers on the way to the public. So you took the company public, you won. What is it like taking a company public in Japan? How did you prepare? Is there a bell there that you get to ring? Mm -hmm. What is it like? Yeah, that was a so fantastic event for me to ring the bell. <laughs> but that, that road to the public after I made a decision to go to public is very, it was very short. It was only one and a half year. And what I did to be public is hire good CFO, hire experienced person who has experience of leading the company to public and delegate all the admin work to them. That's all, <laughs> very simple. <laughs> but before that, the most important thing is to develop the a growing business. That's the most important thing for the, for the going public. If we meet the criteria of the growing business, the rest of that is admin work. It's very simple. So many people think that the process of IPO is very difficult and complex. But from my perspective, it's very simple to embed. It is to embed some governance rule. How were you able to change from, 
hands-on growing this company, hyper growth, to delegate and stepping back? How was that transition? I don't like the top-down type company. I don't want to be the king. I respect my team members. I try to organize the management team. So it was not difficult for me to delegate some tasks to other members because I, I'm very good at some uh, creating new ideas and developing uh, innovations. But I do not, I'm not good at management people and I'm, I'm not good at admin work. So I respect other management members who are familiar with those kind of tasks. So it was easy for me. And then after your company went public, did the culture of the company change at all? Was there anything from before and after that was noticeable to you? I think there are no big difference before and after, I think, for the culture. How about for the interaction with your investors? Hmm. That changes so much. So before IPO, the communication with the investors was a very small task for me. So there is a small number of investors and who knows very much about our business and our industry. But after IPO, there are so many investors become our shareholders. So they don't know about the big data. They don't know about the sales business. So I need to tell them about how our business is attractive, how our business grow faster than other companies. So the communication cost was, uh, communication cost increased so much. That communication cost, that increase, did it take away resources from the company to, I guess, satisfy the public to, were you diverting your resource, your time from running the company, working the company to the general public for the investors? We need to invest for that kind of a communication task, but the return is bigger than that. So we can leverage our value by the stock price. So even if revenue uh, profit is small, but stock price leverage our profit. So using that leverage, we can acquire another company. The cost is very small with comparison with that kind of leverage. What experiences do you have as the CEO of a public company that people in the private, the smaller companies on that road, what should they know? What experience that you had doing that can you share? These days, I get to know the differences between Japanese institutional investors and the U.S. institutional investors. So Japanese institutional investors have interest in the short-term profit, but the U.S. institutional investors request us to the more middle-term or long-term growth. So they do, do not care about the short-term profit. I want to give advice to the CFO of, CFO of the company who were preparing for IPO in Japan, contact with the U.S. institutional investors. 
and do not pay attention to Japanese institutional investors. That changes the market value of them drastically when they go public. Now, your company also has offices in China as well. So, you have experience working in Japan, China, and the US.、Mm -hmm. How are these three markets working? Your experience, how are they different? How are they similar? So, in China, it's very, very fast. And the size of the market is huge. So, easily we can expand the business size in China. And Japan, it's slow, but we can get much profit in Japan. But the Japanese customer, especially a corporate customer, is very slow to accept the new innovations. And in US, market size is big, but not so big like、uh, China. And the speed is high, but China's market speed is more, more than US speed. Question There's so many unicorn companies coming out of the US, so many coming out of China. What's lacking in the Japanese startup ecosystem to foster more successes there? That's a very interesting question to me because many, I, I realize that Japanese entrepreneurs' skill. Can compete with、uh, US entrepreneurs. But if they start the startup in Japan, their first target market is Japanese market. That's a problem. So if they、uh, try to get the share in Japanese market, at the same, at the same time, their competitor is getting a more bigger market in US. After they win in Japanese market, even if they Try to go into the US market, already their rival g e t the share in US. So their market value can be、uh, limited in the size of the Japanese market. But in case of US startups, after they, they secure the market share in US, so without any changes of the product, they can expand their services out to out of US. In case of a Japanese entrepreneur, they have to. Translate their interface to English, and they need to build a new teams which fit to, to participate in the US market. So, what solutions could there be? Would you recommend a Japanese startup just to start in the US, or is it possible to, to solve this problem or not at the time? I strongly recommend a Japanese entrepreneur to start their. Company in US and organize their team with a variety of people, talented people. If they start in Japan, they organize a management team with only Japanese people. That's a big problem. And right now, are you coaching or mentoring any Japanese startups? If you were, is there other advice you would give them other than just relocate to Silicon Valley? <laughs> Not advice, but, but I encourage them to have confidence in their capability. So, their capability is very competitive. And for example, when I became the CEO of a US company, I thought that US company's management style is different from Japanese one. 
because many Japanese big corporations acquired U.S. company and gave the Japanese way of management style to the U.S. employees. So many talented U.S. employees run away from the <laughs> acquired company. I saw a lot of movies growing up with them. Yeah. yeah. So uh, when we acquired a U.S. company, I thought that I should not touch the management of a U.S. company. And I, I tried to delegate the management to the original management team of that company. That was wrong. After I fired them, I became the CEO of the company. I realized that the management style in Japanese startup and the U.S. startup is not that not at all different, not at all different. For example, my policy of a management, management company is transparency and the fairness and uh, share the mission, vision, value, and the trust and the respect and the treat uh, employee like a family. So those kinds of concepts can be uh, accepted by you, even U.S. employees. So... Many Japanese entrepreneurs are reading the zero to one or lean startups or visionary companies. Koki, you were a visionary way ahead of the time with your first startup. Is there any technology right now that's really interesting, really exciting to you? Blockchain. It's not logical, but I feel that it's a very similar to the dawn of internet in 1995. Fantastic innovation will happen from now. Well, what are the possibilities that this technology could foster? It takes long time. And for example, uh, internet started in 1995, but till now, 25 years passed. So now, uh, Bitcoin, and Coinbase, they, they are like uh, Yahoo or Netscape. Many years will be needed for the adoption by the normal people. But something happened from now. Is this technology back in Japan being adopted? Who's at the front? US, Japan, China? Where are you seeing the most innovation? Where is it interesting the most to you? Two years ago, I participated in the event called as Consensus in New York. So when I participated in that event, I was very surprised because in Japan, there are many uh, big corporations trying to do the POS. Point of sale system? No. <laughs> <laughs> Proof of concept. But in U.S., Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, or U.S. government, so many adults a big giant are, are rushing into that industry. And when I talked with the Japanese young blockchain uh, engineers, hey, in US and Japan, there are so big differences. But he recommended me to go to Europe. The situation should be different than that. So I went to the Web3 Summit in German. So that event was so much different from U.S. event. So many crypto engineers are gathering and they want to innovate for that platform or protocols to 
protect user privacy and to go to the next stage of the centralized IT giant like a Facebook or Google. And uh, in China, another innovation trend existed. In case of blockchain industry, in all of the world, innovation happened. So we, I thought that we need to track the whole world trend. So I allocated some money to the several blockchain fund to monitor the worldwide trend of blockchain industry. Okay, I haven't replied, uh, answered for your question, but in two years past, the U.S. blockchain industry's gross ratio is huge. And Europe and the Chinese innovation speed is behind U.S. I thought, why? What is the reason of that? Because money, money, money. <laughs> Many entrepreneurs pursue the rich life and many investors pursue the exit, big exit, big return. So that desire, I don't say it's right or bad, but the energy creates big gap between U.S. and the other countries. Would you say the same feeling right now with blockchain is how you felt when you were doing the start, your first startup in 1995? Is it very similar? More energy, different energy? How would you compare the two? I feel the same energy, but bigger than that, probably. So Koki, with that though, let our audience know how are you using the blockchain right now for your next projects? How are you incorporating it into what you're building? When I see the worldwide trend of blockchain innovation, but I thought that I need to do by myself at the same time. But when I try to build some business based on blockchain, I realized that it's very hard at this moment. It's too early, like uh, 1995 of the internet. But uh, for example, uh, there are many ideas of the blockchain system which break the traditional system or traditional social system infrastructure. But blockchain, a new blockchain system can reduce the cost more than the traditional system. But the transition cost from traditional system to the blockchain system is big. So the transition does not happen. Then I got a new idea. <laughs> so now I'm leading a nonprofit organization project which supports our LGBT couples and the other families who are not recognized as a family legally. Legally in the U.S., legally in Japan, legally where? Oh, legally in Japan and other, um, most of the Asian countries. So we issue the partnership certificate for LGBT couple or other families. And uh, also we organize a network of big corporations who provide the services for family even those family are not legal family without certificate. If they are, they have 
our certificate. So even in these countries where the government does not recognize their relationships, your company gives them certificates, and by doing so, what happens? Yeah, for example, LGBT couple in Japan and Asian country, if they get the mortgage loan, loan, they cannot get mortgage loan as by the amount of combination of the income,、mm. or they cannot be the life insurance beneficiary. And if you are, for example, you are partner of me,、mm. and you very very handsome adopted kids, <laughs> I think so. And、uh, get I cannot sign for the surgery agreement for you. Even we think we are family, but there is now big corporation like Panasonic, Salesforce, Sega, and those kind of big corporation started to accept that LGBT couple with our certificate as a family, and the big. A hospital started to accept our certificate to treat them as a family. So, without changing the law, we can change the world.、Mm. So, Koki, what has the progress been so far? Is it still developing? Is it being used? Just the MVP? Is it? What stage is what you're doing at right now? We already started to issue the certificates for for LGBT couples, and already more than fifty big corporations agreed and started to accept our certificate.、Mm. Nice. <laughs> Thank you. And some local government also accepted our certificate. <laughs> so, what's going to happen in the next year, three years? How does this grow? I mean, it's amazing to hear of a company who's making so much impact at well, at a global scale, actually. So, where do you see the future? There are two axes. So, one one direction is to expand the coverage of the couples. First, as a first step, we started from the LGBT couples, but there are other various forms of family exist. For example, two pair of the single mother and their children in Japan and the other Asian country. It's very very hard to work with children by herself. So there are some、uh, people who say, "Hey." Why don't we? Why don't we live together? Why don't we help each other? Why don't we take each children together? If something happens for me,、uh, please take care of my children. But Japanese government or other government don't recognize them as a family, so they cannot get the mortgage loan when they want to get some apartment and loan, and they cannot get the life insurance together. So I want to expand the family concept to more various forms of family. Another direction is expand the coverage of the country. Now we started from Japan. 
now foreigners staying in Japan can apply for our certificate, but I want to expand our initiative to cover other countries where LGBT couple are not recognized as family. No applauses here. All right. <laughs> Your past success with taking a company public and this current initiative, what were the lessons you learned from that first company that are making it so that you're being successful with your current endeavor, your current project? So after I did IPO, I realized that the power of entrepreneur is bigger than what they image. I mean, I want to contribute to the better world through our business. But after IPO, some lady asked me to donate to start a new, uh, the first international boarding school, boarding high school in Japan. So I allocated some tax money to start their international high school. Then I became the committee member of that school. And I get to know that so much impact for future society will be created by the education and the school. So I, I thought that I use so much energy for the growth of my company, but I just allocate some money for that education. But that school creates the future of the world more than my company. So I thought that I should use my energy or wealth or experience or human network more than my business. So I started to do some social activities. So I want to say to entrepreneur that please make your site open and you can do more than your business. So Koki, I have two more questions for you before wrapping up. Koki, what has been your experience, the difference between running a private company and a nonprofit or a public and a nonprofit? I was very surprised by the, my experience of the leading the nonprofit organization because there are so many talented person, persons joined this project to change the world better. So if I'm doing this initiative for profit and for my company, they do not join this project. So, and uh, doing two good things, to, um, to do good things for society and get sympathy from many people. That's make a big power and a big Voltex spiral. So that's a big difference between the profit profit organization and the non-profit organization. And with all these hours that you're putting into all these companies, I mean, and most people take a company public, they normally like to retire or rest for a while. With all this work you've done, not resting, were there any sacrifices or that that you made looking back that you would have done different? 
there are no sacrifice for me. So always is getting my wealth. So I'm getting so much things by my challenge and my life. And with that, Kogi, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your company, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Please contact me directly <laughs> through LinkedIn or Facebook Messenger because many of our initiative is starting from Japan, like other normal Japanese entrepreneurs. That's a big problem. And a very innovative and advanced initiative like my LGBT community support started in Japan. So all the information are in Japanese. So please come to me. I can share the latest information in English. And All right, we'll have all that information in the show notes for our audience out there. Please go to the Silicon Valley Podcast.com, our website, our social media handles are the Silicon Valley Podcast and Sean Flynn SV. For our audience out there, please connect with me on LinkedIn. And with that, Koki, I want to thank you for your time again on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.